The Nature Podcast is supported by Nature Plus, a flexible monthly subscription that grants immediate online access to the science journal Nature and over 50 other journals from the Nature Portfolio. More information at go.nature.com slash plus. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This time, the difference a Y chromosome can make to bladder cancer and engineering artificial cartilage. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Nick Petrichow. First up on the show, how the lack of a Y chromosome can make bladder cancer worse. Now, Y chromosomes are mostly talked about for their role in sex determination, but it seems this little stretch of DNA has other roles to play as well. It's been shown that as people age, the Y chromosome is often lost in some cells. Scientists aren't exactly sure why this happens, but what we do know is that this chromosome loss is associated with a lot of health conditions. There has been a tremendous amount of evidence that suggests that loss of the Y chromosome is associated with some of the most serious and prevalent human diseases, such as cancer, neurological disease, and cardiovascular disease. This is Dan Theodorescu, a urologist from the Cedars-Sinai Cancer Center. He's got a paper this week in Nature about Y chromosome loss and how it relates to disease. As a urologist, Dan found himself particularly interested in whether the Y chromosome, or lack thereof, was having an effect on bladder cancer. We noticed in the literature that the Y chromosome was also lost in a proportion of bladder cancers, and it was not clear what the role of that loss was. So we decided to test the hypothesis that Y chromosome loss is associated with more severe disease. To do this, Dan and his team assessed 300 male participants with bladder cancer to see if the amount of Y chromosome they had influenced their survival. And as it turned out, those that had very little Y chromosome, or none, in their bladder cells were less likely to survive than those who still retained most of their Y. The team then looked to further check this hypothesis with some experiments in the lab. They developed models of the disease using cancer cells in a dish and mice. Some of these had no Y chromosome, Y negative, or they had the Y chromosome, Y positive. To our surprise, when we tested this hypothesis in animal models that have an intact immune system, so basically very normal, if you will, experimental mice, it was found that the cells that had lost the Y chromosome grew much faster than the cells that had an intact Y chromosome. But while the Y chromosome-less cancer cells grew faster in the animals, 
The same thing wasn't happening in the cells grown in a dish. They grew at the same rate regardless of how much Y chromosome they had. So what is it about the mice that was giving the Y negative cells an advantage? That was the aha moment. We realized that the difference in growth between the Y positives and the Y negative cells was really dependent on the immune system. With this in mind, Dan and the team looked to other mouse models, which had various bits of the immune system missing. The thinking being that they could identify which parts of the immune system were important for the more aggressive growth of the Y-negative cancer cells. In fact, it was the T-cells that drove this difference in growth between the Y-positives and Y-negatives. T-cells are a kind of immune cell that can either kill cancer cells directly or can recruit other immune cells to fight the tumour. But something was amiss when the Y chromosome was missing. As it turned out, in the Y-negative mice, the T-cells were not doing so well. The Y-negative cells cause an immune evasive environment in the tumour, and that, if you will, paralyzes the T-cells and exhausts them, makes them tired and ineffective. And this prevents the Y-negative tumour from being rejected, therefore allowing it to grow much better. Exhausted T-cells have lost their ability to kill cancer cells and have lots of proteins on their surface known as checkpoints, which put the brakes on immune responses. But this exhausting environment made by the tumours could actually be their undoing. What they also did inadvertently, I'm sure, is made themselves a lot more vulnerable to one of the most useful and prevalent therapeutics in cancer today, which is immune checkpoint inhibitors. Immune checkpoint inhibitors are a class of drugs that block those checkpoint proteins that sit on the surface of T-cells, effectively taking the brakes off immune responses, causing the T-cells to become more aggressive. And when T-cells are exhausted, certain immune checkpoint inhibitors seem to be particularly effective. Overall, this means that the bladder cancer is particularly vulnerable to the drugs. So it turns out, while an untreated Y-negative cancer is more aggressive and lethal, when you treat that cancer with immune checkpoint inhibitors, it is more sensitive than the Y-positive cells when they're treated with the same treatment. Immune checkpoint inhibitors are already used in some cancers as treatments. But of course, this study is in mice and in cultured cells, and there'll be more tests to be done to find out whether the results of this work are relevant to humans. Also, this loss of why may only explain why certain cancers are more aggressive. Different cancers show different responses to the absence or presence of Y chromosomes. Another study in Nature this week actually shows that when part of a Y chromosome, a particular gene, is introduced into mice without Y chromosomes, it makes colorectal cancer worse. Nonetheless, for bladder cancer, Dan is confident about the future. I am very optimistic that in the next year or so, we'll have identified additional therapeutics that could be used in combination with checkpoint inhibitors that could make the Y negative, these very aggressive, stealthy tumors, even more susceptible to checkpoint inhibitors. So I'm very optimistic of the future and the potential of these findings. That was Dan Fiedorescu from Cedars-Sinai Cancer Center in the US. 
find out more about that story, check out the link in the show notes. Coming up, making cartilage from aerogels. Right now, though, it's the research highlights with Noah Baker. Fine particles of pollution can ferry influenza deep into the lungs, according to new research. It's known that exposure to air pollution can make viral infections more severe, but precisely how has been a mystery. Now, a team in China may have an answer. Pollutant particles can attract and carry virus on their surface. The researchers infected mice with a mixture of flu virus and one of four types of fine particle. Pollutants collected from Beijing's air attracted the most viral particles, followed by soot made from burning either maize or fossil fuels, and finally silica dust. The particles easily carried their viral payloads into lung cells in laboratory dishes without the virus having to bind any cellular receptor. In cells infected with viruses attached to pollutants, more viral progeny budded off to infect other cells than in those infected with the virus alone. The virus-laden particles also travelled deep into the lungs of live mice and to their spleens, liver and kidneys, causing system-wide inflammation and tissue damage. Read more on that study in Science Advances. The glowworm's come-hither signal is being lost in the glare of human lights. Female glowworms emit green light from their bodies to lure their mates. But this behaviour makes them vulnerable to light pollution. A team in the UK seeking to understand the risk placed male glowworms at the bottom of a Y-shaped chamber. Then they used a green LED light to mimic a female's glow, secured at the top of one of the chamber's arms. They recorded how long it took the males to find the light, both in the dark and under increasing levels of white light pollution. Every male found the LED in the dark, but only 21% of them found it under the brightest light, about equivalent to the glare below a lamppost. However, even low levels of white light more than doubled the time it took the males to reach their target, and caused them to hide their eyes beneath a shield-shaped head structure. The researchers say that this effect could run the risk of driving the glowworms to extinction. Seek that research out in the Journal of Experimental Biology. Next up, reporter Benjamin Thompson has been finding out about some new research looking to develop artificial cartilage that could help mend damaged joints. The load-bearing tissues found in our bodies are mechanical marvels. For example, cartilage, the tissue that can be thought of as the body's shock absorber, has a range of properties that enable it to play its vital role. As Hongbin Lee from the University of British Columbia in Canada explains. So there is very, very low friction, very low wear, and it can dissipate energy, dissipate impact, so that the bone tissue or muscle tissue will not be damaged. Cartilage has to withstand and dissipate the huge forces placed on it every time we take a hop, a skip or a jump. And although it's very good at doing this, sadly, it doesn't always last forever. So researchers have been trying to work out how it might be possible to replace cartilage. 
So one of the ways that people envision is to use synthetic tissue. Uh, so in that case, uh, you want to get as close to the native tissue as possible, and then it can be integrated into the native environment so that you can restore those functions. And developing a material with the potential to be used as synthetic cartilage is something that Hongmin and his colleagues have a paper about in Nature this week. But making a material that mimics cartilage is easier said than done. You see, it's a tissue that needs to be exceptionally stiff, so that it doesn't just collapse when weight is put on it. But it also needs to be exceptionally tough, which in material science terms essentially means it can be deformed bent or compressed, say, many, many times without breaking. And these two characteristics, stiffness and toughness, are in direct opposition. You can make a material that's incredibly stiff, for example, but it won't be very tough. It would likely be brittle, which wouldn't make for a good cartilage substitute. In the body, cartilage in the joints manages to be both stiff and tough, thanks, in part, to a tangled network of proteins and other molecules that help dissipate forces and give the tissue its shape. It was this network that Hongbin looked to emulate using a material called a hydrogel. Yeah, hydrogel is kind of a network of polymers that can hold water. And so the polymers will not dissolve, but can swell. They can hold a lot of water in the network. And so hydrogel in that sense is kind of a very similar to the biological tissues. Researchers have successfully made hydrogels out of proteins that are tough and can mimic the properties of muscles, say. But it's been difficult to turn these materials into ones with cartilage-like capabilities. One way to make them stiffer is chemically stick sections of the different protein chains together, known as cross-linking. However, there's a limit to how far you can take this. Add too many cross-links and the chains are no longer able to move, with negative effects on the material. You can make it stiff, but they are brittle. They can no longer dissipate energy effectively. Hongbin was looking for a way to get the protein chains in his hydrogel to stick together in a way that would increase the stiffness without making the material brittle. And he and his team did this by jumbling them up using a process called entanglement, which he likens to something that happens when you're eating spaghetti. Because the individual spaghetti strand, when you try to pull one, so probably you are going to get a few together because they are kind of entangled. So they are not kind of isolated individual ones. To achieve this entanglement, Hongbin took the protein chains that his hydrogel was made of and unfolded them, making long spaghetti-like strands with no 3D structure. These strands tangled up and this entanglement was locked in place with a smattering of chemical crosslinks. Finally, in areas where they weren't entangled, the protein strands were made to refold back into their original shape. This three-step process led to a lot more points of contact between the proteins in the hydrogel, helping stiffen the material. But these entanglements aren't as permanent as the chemical crosslinks that can make everything brittle. Instead, proteins can slide across each other. Also, the refolded sections of protein are free to unfold once again when the material is squeezed. And so this will allow the energy to be dissipated quite effectively. And so when you remove the stress, the unfolded protein can refold. The team put their hydrogel through its paces to see what it could do. Its stiffness is much higher than previous protein-based hydrogel, so by almost order of magnitude. 
And so now we can get to a range that is close to college. And this is tough. And so you can really compress this hydrogel to more than 80% its original dimension without cracking. While cartilage has a number of properties that make it good at doing its job, there is one thing this tissue is not so good at, and that's repairing itself. Damage to cartilage can take a long time to heal or require surgery to fix, so the team wanted to see whether their hydrogel could help. To find out, they implanted small sections into damaged cartilage in an animal model to see whether the hydrogel could act as a scaffold for new tissue to grow on and around. So after three months implantation, we see the the newly grown tissues from the appearance and from the histology and other tests. They are very similar to the native cartilage. And then at the end of the three months uh, implantation, the protein hydrogel scaffold is completely degraded. Because Hongbin's hydrogel is based on protein, he says it's biodegradable, leaving behind only the new tissue. But while this result appears positive, Hongbin cautions that three months isn't long enough to say that this early tissue regrowth would result in mature cartilage later on. There's also a lot to understand about the healing process. For example, the team tested hydrogels of different stiffnesses and found that, confusingly, the one with properties closest to real cartilage didn't perform the best. So the highly stiff one is closer to cartilage, but in the animal experiment, they didn't give the best results. The hydrogel gave the best results. It's stiff, but not that stiff. So this was a little bit to our surprise. So this really points to the complexity of biological uh, system. There's clearly lots to learn before the team's work could translate into treatments in humans. And Hongbin's approach isn't the only one being developed and tested. But right now, he and his colleagues are working to tune the mechanics of their hydrogel to see if they can improve it by incorporating some of the molecules that make cartilage cartilage. And although it might be a long road, Hongbin is excited to see where it leads. In the field, people call this one of the unsolved challenge. So compared with bone repair, college is much more difficult. So it's not the end, but rather more exciting. So this is the beginning. That was Hongbin Lee from the University of British Columbia in Canada. To read his paper, head over to the show notes where you can find a link. Finally on the show, it's time for the briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of articles that have been featured in the Nature Briefing. Shamini, what have you got for us this time? So I've been reading this really interesting article in Science, and I'm going to do the really mean thing, Nick, where I've read this and you haven't, and I'm going to ask you to kick us off. Oh, no. Do you think, yeah, sorry, do you think you can explain the concept of chirality when molecules are chiral? This is the one that I seem to remember from organic chemistry, where some things are right-handed and some things are left-handed, so... Chiral things have like mirror reflections, like reflections of each other, but some have in the right-hand way and some have in the left-hand way. I think like, I think DNA is right-handed or something like that. Yes, exactly. So as you say, DNA is an example. And in fact, loads of organic molecules are sort of chiral in one way. So for example, DNA and the sort of DNA bases are right-handed. Amino acids and proteins are left-handed. And this is quite common in life, but it's actually a bit of a puzzle because a sort of normal chemical reaction will tend to produce a sort of 50-50 split of left-handed and right-handed versions of 
chiral molecules, whereas life, it tends to be this really strong, what they call homochirality. So it's all kind of one type or another, depending on the molecule. And apparently one of the puzzles of life is where this sort of originated from. How do you, when you're, you know, evolving into a living thing, how do you start off getting this bias towards one side or another? And that is what this particular paper has a potential and promising suggestion for. So if this is happening in life and in not life, it's sort of a 50-50 split. Why is there this bias when things are alive? Okay, so this article starts with, in 1848, French chemist Louis Pasteur. You may remember Louis Pasteur from other exciting episodes of science. But but in this case, <laughs> he had a theory for this homochirality, which could explain it. And he thought that it must have something to do with magnetic fields. And now there's three new papers which suggest that, yes, magnetic minerals that would have been found on the early Earth could in fact have sort of accumulated certain molecules on their surface and favoured one form over another, setting off a sort of positive feedback loop for that particular version. So paint me a picture here, because I'm not quite sure I fully get how magnetic minerals lead to life preferring one way or another. So how is it that magnetic minerals lead to, say, DNA being right-handed? Okay, so the link here (laughs) between the molecules and and the magnetic field is all about the spin of electrons, So there was a paper from 1999 which found that molecules with the opposite chiral forms have contrasting patterns of spin, electronic spin, which is in fact a magnetic property. And further research showed that this can mean that they interact differently with magnetic materials. And some later research by the same group sort of experimented with this and found that peptides, so like short amino acid chains, they found that they could make one form left-handed peptides bind to a magnetic surface while the right-handed ones were repelled. So that is one way that you could get an initial bias in whether it's right or left-handed forms of a molecule because they could accumulate on this surface. Now the thing about that is that there are other explanations for this sort of initial skew for example. So cosmic rays, polarised light, they can also cause this initial bias. And the question after that was like, okay, you've got a bias, but how is this bias amplified? How is that sort of built up to create this sort of large reservoir of chiral molecules that you would probably need to make the first cells? And that's where this new research comes in. And it's based on a molecule called ribo-amino-oxazoline. RAO, I'm going to call it RAO much easier, which can help form some of the building blocks of RNA, which is like one of the probably key things in the sort of evolution of life, RNA as opposed to DNA. And this RAO molecule forms these crystals. And once a crystal starts to grow from either a left or right-handed version of the molecule, only the same chirality molecule can then bind. So that's how you get this amplification. And these new researchers have basically combined this sort of previous research and taken magnetite, a magnetic mineral from the Earth's crust, applied a really strong magnetic field and exposed it to a mixture of different RAO molecules of different chiralities and showed that there was a bias in the ones that settled on it and that this bias could then sort of self-propagate and eventually form pure single-handed 
RAO crystals. Wow, okay, so just a quirk of the Earth's magnetic field interacting with these materials then led to crystals, which then may have led to certain molecules being a certain way in life. But is this it now, the researchers think? Have we got to the nub of why it is that molecules in life seem to be either right-handed or left-handed? Well, no one's yet gone back in time to sort of prove anything that happened. One expert interviewed for this article said that they thought it was a sort of very likely solution. Another researcher says, well, the magnetic field that they used was sort of actually several times stronger than the Earth's magnetic field in their experiment. So not very realistic conditions. They seemed a bit more doubtful. But the team has done some further work that's currently on a preprint server under more realistic conditions, showing a sort of slower, smaller bias, but still a bias existing towards one form of a chiral molecule over another. And another sort of slight sort of loose end is that RIO, this particular molecule, very important for RNA, but it's actually only been shown to make two out of the four RNA nucleotides, not yet the other two. So maybe it will be, maybe that's still a little bit of a gap. But this solution certainly, according to one of the researchers, solves more sort of steps of the problem than other solutions that have been proposed. And once you have got this sort of basic chirality in RNA, say, chemical reactions would then pass on that chiral bias so that other molecules, amino acids, proteins, are then sort of templated. And then you get perhaps the full chirality of life as we see it today. Well, I'll be interested to see if Louis Pasteur was actually right or (laughs) not then with this one. Thanks for that one, Shamni. For my story this week, I've been reading about how groundwater pumping may have actually affected the Earth's axis. Wait, so you mean groundwater extraction as in people taking water out of the ground to to use for various things? Yeah, essentially humans drilling wells or digging down to get water out of the earth to then use in mostly agriculture and that sort of thing. So so I've been reading about this in a news article in Nature and this sort of redistribution of water from the ground and to eventually the oceans may have actually affected how the earth's axis is tilted by a few centimetres. That sounds really unbelievable though because you know the earth has is a big planet relative to you and me with like this huge mass and like sure there's a lot of water but it's just kind of around the outside like how can just us moving bits of water around have such a impact that the entire planet's tilt could change well i must say it's a lot of water between 1993 and 2010 it's about two trillion tons so it's a significant amount of mass that has been moved around And the Earth's axis actually moves quite a bit already due to mass moving around. So during seasonal and weather changes, the atmosphere moves around. And this massive shift of air, basically, also will shift the axis. Because as an object spins around, if its centre of mass moves, the tilt at which it is spinning will also move. I see. Okay, so these two trillion tonnes of groundwater that we've been 
um, redistributing has quite a big impact. How would you go about measuring that and figuring out the sort of link between us moving water around and the Earth's tilt changing? Well, it's quite difficult because it's still a relatively small change. So the change of the atmosphere moving around is much bigger than this, but it's still measurable. So what researchers do is they use quasars, which are bright centres of distant galaxies that are so far away that they're essentially immobile from our perspective. And using them, they can sort of figure out like how the axis is changing. And by using this information and other information about sort of the Earth and the various waters on it, some researchers were trying to figure out how much water may have tilted the Earth's axis uh, because they thought maybe, you know, sea level rise due to glaciers melting and that sort of thing, maybe changing it. But when they were doing this, they found sort of a few centimetres they couldn't quite explain. And so there's a quote in the article from the researchers that says, so I just scratched my head and said, probably one effect is groundwater. And then when they included groundwater in their calculations, they had a model. It seemed to agree with the observed change in the Earth's axis tilt. So as you say, the weather and over the different seasons, the Earth's axis is tilting quite a lot. So this isn't a sort of example of like, humans are ruining the planet yet again. You know, this, is, this isn't like a problem, right? No, but I think it is an indication of just how much we are influencing the planet. You know, you think of things like the Earth's axis as being this enormous (laughs) thing that we couldn't possibly (laughs) affect. But then because we've shifted so much groundwater, especially in North America and in India, predominantly for agriculture, it has had an actual measurable effect. And yeah, it's only a few centimetres and the Earth is quite big, but it's still pretty impressive or quite sad, depending on your perspective, that humans can have such a huge influence on the planet that we live. Wow, that's a really interesting one. Thank you so much, Nick. And listeners, if you want to find out more about these stories and find out where you can sign up for the Nature Briefing and get more stories like these, then check out the show notes where we'll put some links. That's all for this week. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. Or you can send us an email to podcast at nature.com. I'm Nick Petrichow. And I'm Shamini Bundell. Thanks for listening. The Nature Podcast is supported by Nature Plus, a flexible monthly subscription that grants immediate online access to the science journal Nature and over 50 other journals from the Nature Portfolio. More information at go.nature.com slash plus.